the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice, he's offered his office space and I'm grateful to all three. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Bess Wills. She, of course, is with Gresham Ford. We're going to talk about some of the stuff they're doing to reach out to their community and let you know what's happening at Gresham Ford if you happen to be in the market for a vehicle. We'll also talk with Susan Alexander Yates. She is the author of Cousin Camp, a Grandparents Guide to Creating Fun, Faith, and Memories that Last. But we're going to talk about how to help families who are, well, quarantining together and maybe looking for uh, ways to make it a meaningful time together. So we'll talk with her about some of the practical uh, things that she has in her book, Cousin Camp. Of course, you can't really hang out with the cousins right now, but uh, a lot of this applies to families who are together. We're also going to talk with Michael Austin. He is with the Christian History Institute. We'll talk about an issue of Christian History magazine that focuses on the role the church played in establishing health care and hospitals. Uh, in fact, it was an issue that was released some years ago, and they made mention of pandemics in that issue, which was somewhat prophetic. So we'll talk with Michael Austin about this Christian History magazine article. And by the way, you can um, read that online. I have a link to the uh, web address on our Facebook page. So check out Georgine Rice Show Facebook page and you can go and see all of the articles, the artwork and everything else that made up that edition. Taking a look at some of the headline news, some states across the country are beginning to lift stringent stay-at-home orders in an effort to reopen their economies after several weeks of lockdown due to the coronavirus pandemic. Now, the biggest leap to resume normalcy out of any other state is Governor Greg Abbott's plan to reopen businesses in Texas, even allowing retail stores, restaurants and movie theaters to open up to customers albeit at a limited capacity starting on Friday, May the 1st. Now, when I say limited capacity, I believe it's like a quarter of the normal capacity. So it is um, significantly uh, reduced. Texas has the country's second largest economy behind California, but like much of the country, has seen the crippling effects of prolonged lockdowns due to the spread of COVID-19. Texas has had the 10th highest number of coronavirus infections in the country, and continues to grapple with 25,292 cases. Well, despite this, Governor Abbott said businesses will be allowed to accommodate customers at 25% capacity, but everyone is advised to abide by social distancing rules. Uh, bars, barbershops, hair salons, and gyms, however, will remain closed. In Tennessee, Georgia, and Alaska, restaurants began reopening and uh, to dine-in customers with new rules such as uh, temperature checks at the door and logging of uh, customers' information for possible contact tracing. In other states, the return to normalcy seems further away and in some cases exceedingly more complicated. In Illinois, a judge issued a temporary injunction against Governor J.B. Pritzker on Monday after he extended uh, his state's lockdown to May the 30th. Pritzker had ordered that everyone wear a face mask when in public and sustained that all non-essential businesses remain closed to slow the spread of the coronavirus. Governors in several states 
New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and others. They're uh, the hardest hit by the virus. They're looking at uh, beefing up their contact tracing and amplifying testing before they make uh, uh, changes in uh, how to open up their states, easing the restrictions there. And some other related developments, the Secretary of State, Bob Barr, he directed the federal prosecutors to report restrictive states, local coronavirus edicts, to make sure they weren't overreaching. And in Pennsylvania, businesses uh, take um, have taken their flight against the governor's coronavirus executive order to the Supreme Court. And coronavirus uh, likely will come back each year, according to Chinese scientists. Well, the head of the emergency department at a Manhattan hospital committed suicide after spending days on the front lines of the coronavirus battle. Her family said on Monday she tried to do her job and it killed her. Dr. Philip Breen told the New York Times of his physician daughter, Dr. Lorna Breen, who had been medical director of the New York uh, Presbyterian Allen Hospital amid the pandemic. The battle-weary ER doctor, 49, was only the latest city health care worker to to have taken her own life. Two days earlier, a Bronx EMT witnessing the virus's ruthless toll fatally shot himself with a gun belonging to his retired NYPD cop dad. If uh, nothing else reminds us that we need to be praying for and supporting those who are on the front lines of this pandemic, uh, these are two examples that remind us of the tremendous stress that they are under. If you wonder if it's important to express your gratitude. I know around hospitals all around the country at seven o'clock, there are people who come out and in loud, very public ways are expressing their gratitude. These people are under tremendous pressure. And I don't think most of us can really appreciate what that's like, but we certainly can in in ways that are practical and possible under the pandemic, uh, extend ourselves to express our appreciation and support in other ways uh, where we can. The Washington Post was slammed late Monday night for questionable framing of the latest developments that emerged surrounding the allegations made by Biden accuser Tara Reid. Reid, who came forward last month accusing the former Vice President Joe Biden of sexual assault as a Senate staffer in 1993, has had more corroborating evidence surface in recent days. A clip from Larry King Live back in 1993 purportedly showing Reid's mother calling into the show anonymously and alluding to her daughter's problems she had with a prominent senator was brought to light on Friday. And on Monday, two more people, a former neighbor and former colleague of Reed's, came forward to back her claims after conversations um, uh, they've had back in the 90s. However, a piece published by The Post raised eyebrows with its original headline that read, Developments and Allegations Against Biden Amplify Efforts to Question His Behavior. Not long after it was published, a new headline appeared in the report, Trump allies highlight new claims regarding allegations against Biden. That didn't sit well with either side. One reporter said the lifelong Democrats who backed Biden's accusers claim uh, claims have come forward and Reid trashed Alyssa Milano for defending the former vice president and presumptive Democratic nominee. The president is suggesting that schools should be open for a short period of time before academic the academic school year ends. And questions are swirling, rather, as the federal uh, Fed rather meets amid the deepening economic crisis. What will they do? Oil decline continues on demands uh, dropping. There's an oversupply. And the coronavirus stimulus phase four could exceed one trillion dollars and include negative payroll taxes. One New York doctor is calling for an end to the current lockdown. Dr. Daniel Murphy says, I'm an emergency physician at St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx. 
I've been in ER every day these last few weeks, either supervising or providing direct care. I contracted COVID-19 infection very early in the outbreak, as did two of my daughters, one of whom is a nurse. We are all well, thank God. COVID-19 has been the worst healthcare disaster of my 30-year career because of its intensity, duration, and potential for lasting impact. The lasting impact is what worries me the most, and it's why I now believe we should end the lockdown and rapidly get back to work. An interesting perspective from not only a healthcare worker, a physician, but someone who has contracted COVID-19. Guy Benson on Dr. Murphy's article saying, key points, I worry about non-coronavirus care. 43% of those tested in the Bronx are positive for COVID-19. Well, it turns out there is a lot of math involved in figuring out how bad this really is in New York. And Kevin McCullough, his town hall article has uh, been getting a lot of press as he challenges the assumptions that have yet to be proven true. Well, businesses are suing um, California Governor Newsom to, for keeping businesses shut from that story reported by the Los Angeles Times and ABC News. Defendants' orders have approximately and legally caused tremendous financial harm not just to plaintiffs' businesses, but to the entire California economy, the suit says. We've got small businesses that have been effectively put out of business or forced to close literally without rhyme or reason. That's a quote from the lead attorney, Mark Garagos of Garagos and Garagos in Los Angeles. But the real problem, according to YouTube censors, um, which, by the way, are censoring doctors who are saying it's time to open parts of the country, the real problem is likely his statement uh, comparing the virus to the flu in this particular sensor uh, e- example uh, given. Anyway, one congressman, Chip Roy, says this. This is outrageous. Hey, YouTube, why was this pulled down? Whether you agree with him or not, referring to the doctor, is somehow a problem that this doctor dared to challenge the conventional wisdom that lockdown is good for our health. And the comparison to the flu is that it comes around every year and how we deal with it year in and year out. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break. When we do return, we're going to talk with Bess Wills of Gresham Ford. We'll also talk with Susan Alexander Yates, giving you as a family some ideas of how you can spend your time together wisely and meaningfully. So we'll get into that uh, later this hour as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this lovely Tuesday afternoon. Now, if I were to say the name Bess Wills, you probably would have a voice in mind. Bess Wills with Gresham Ford. Well, Bess is the general manager and co-owner of Gresham Ford. She's a huge supporter of East Multnomah County and everything it has to offer. She's also the past president of the Gresham Area Chamber of Commerce and co-chair of the Tri-Local First Coalition, trying to help people, um, well, see the benefits of shopping local in their community. She has a passion for the people of East County and beyond. She uh, inspired the Contribute to the Community program that's helped Gresham Ford participate and support many local charities and nonprofits. And uh, I wanted to give you an opportunity to find out what she and Gresham Ford are doing now. Bess Wills has a huge heart, and I discovered it's been a couple of years ago now, the significant impact she is having in our community and beyond. And wanted to give her an opportunity to tell you a little bit about what's happening during this uh, unique uh, virus that has uh, had all of us sheltering in place and let you know uh, what's available at Gresham Ford as well. Bess Wills, welcome. Hey, Georgine, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, but the question is, how are you doing with this whole uh, quarantine? Well, you know, it's it's been, a, you know, a challenge, you know, to all of us, I'm sure. 
But we've been so blessed. Um, you know, we've, our customers have, you know, continued to come in. You know, we've obviously have to do things differently now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's only, um, you know, we have all kinds of signs downstairs and you have to stand so far apart and, you know, we have the masks available and, you know, we have all kinds of sanitizers and things cleaning the, you know, cleaning the cars and, um, making sure everything is, you know, scrubbed every hour on the hour. <laughs> Um, so that's kind of a good thing in all fairness, uh, you know, teaching us to wash our hands more often, I suppose, isn't the worst thing that we've ever learned. Okay. (laughs) Well, I think it's important for our listeners to know that Gresham Ford is open. You can shop, you can buy from home and the, the, um, things that you're describing to make sure that your employees and people who are coming to Gresham Ford are safe. In fact, if you come in for service, they disinfect your vehicle before you return or it's returned to you. So you've taken all the precautions to make sure that uh, people are well taken care of. You also have altered your hours somewhat for, for both sales and service? Well, you know, in all fairness, our sales hours are pretty much the same, uh, 9 a.m. Mm-hmm. to 8 a.m., Monday through Saturday, and then Sunday, 10 to 7. But our service department, we had been being open till 8 o'clock, um, but now we're closing at 6 p.m. And I'm not sure, you know, it'll probably be shortly. We'll hopefully try to go back to the 8 o'clock. Um, but that, you know, obviously we had staffing issues, as everybody does, you know, because people had people to care for and so forth. And so yeah. we felt it was best to shorten the hours and give more quality service, if you will, and then to have longer hours and be, you know, have our have our employees stressed, if you will. Well, I know that um, Gresham Ford uh, and you developed the Contribute to the Community program that's touched and contributed to well over 250 local charities and nonprofits in our community. So you have always been um, looking outward, and that's just one example of many that I could. Uh, could cite. I was talking with one of my coworkers, and she was telling me, "You ought to hear what they're doing over at Gresham Ford to help uh, uh, meet the needs of people in their community." Talk a little bit about how you're responding as an individual and as a company uh, to the needs of the community around you during this very unique and challenging time. Well, I'm really proud of my staff. You know, they all, all of us try, you know, to look to others, you know, every day, Georgine, and, and to think, you know, we made some initial calls, like we called the Meals on Wheels people. What can we do? And some of the things that we could do were just so simple. Like they needed, they were doing no contact delivery of meals, but they needed the plastic bags to put the meals in. And, you know, a local restaurant, Sunny Hans, had a lot of them left because they couldn't use them anymore because of the new laws about the plastic bags, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to connect those with them. And, you know, we got that we had a lot of um, our technicians use plastic gloves when they work on vehicles on a day-to-day basis. So we were fortunate we had a lot of them in inventory, and we got some of those over to Snowcap Community Charities. We got those over to El Programo Hispano. We got those over to Meals on Wheels so that they would have those available. And, I mean, I don't think we did anything greater than anybody else. We just, you know, it's all of us working together. You know, we all have these little pieces that, you know, if we do them, you know, it just makes for the greater good. Yeah, and I just think it's important to to note that, this isn't something new for you and Gresham Ford. This is the kind of thinking that you have had for 
many, many years, as I mentioned, that contribute to the community. You established the service tithe and the sales tithes where people have the option of 10% of their repair order or 10% of the uh, purchase price of their new vehicle going to a church or charity of their choice. Again, well, not 10% thinking, of the price. I want to be careful. Is It's $100 with the purchase of each vehicle. Thank okay? you. Thank you. Okay, and, and up to $100 in service. Yeah, when you start getting those big uh, via those big trucks, you know, I, I don't think I could afford that. But we are really, really happy to give $100 to the church or charity um, upon your purchase. And that's after you can negotiate your price. That's when they're handing you the keys, going out the door. We don't know who's going to ask for it and who isn't. So you can be well served and know that it's not, you know, yeah. put in the price of your vehicle. And, you know, we have been able to help a lot of uh, churches and charities in our area. And, and you know, we, we love that. We love that we're giving to the people that our customers are passionate about. Yeah, yeah. Now, where does that come from, Bess? Because I'm, I'm mentioning what Gresham Ford is doing, but you as an individual have a real heart to serve in the community as well and have gone above and beyond the things that we're mentioning. Where does that heart to serve and and see the needs of others come from? Well, I would think I was just blessed with two parents that, you know, always thought of others before they thought of themselves, you know. So I think good role models, you know, are, you know, something that, you know, was truly, truly a blessing in my life. And um, and I just hope that I can do a little bit of that so that my son also, you know, he's he's doing a pretty good job of it himself now. So, you know, we hope that we can, you know, pay that forward a little bit. Yeah, pass that on to the, the next generation. Yeah. Well, I want to make yeah. sure our listeners know that Gresham Ford is open. Um, you can uh, purchase vehicles. You can have your vehicle serviced. You can check out the website for information and details on the uh, the timing and all of that um, and take advantage of the service and sales tithes, which is explained in greater detail and with accuracy on the website. So you can check that out as well. Well, Bess, you really are a blessing in our community in uh, ways small and large. And I so appreciate um, the, the fact that you are part of us, that you're part of our community, and that Gresham Ford is able to not only continue to do what you do so well in East County, but to reach out and uh, help support other organizations who are serving um, those in need in our communities under these very unique circumstances. So thank you. Well, thank you, because I really, really do need to thank you guys for the FISH, KPDQ. I mean, just, you know, a lot of the times we put ads on, like when this first started, you know, um, you helped us with an ad to say, if you need anything, just call us here at Gresham Ford. And, Georgine, we had like a dozen calls of, you know, mm. individuals that were really in panic, you know, and needed things. And, you know, my husband and I took some groceries to a little lady over in Vancouver that hadn't, you know, been able to go out for four days. She was scared to death. She had no food in her house. You know, it was, I mean, so you giving us that blessing of getting that word out has been really impactful to, you know, more than you know, too, Georgine. Mm, well, I appreciate that encouragement, and I'll certainly pass it along. Well, best wills, stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, thank you for serving our community. Thank you, Georgine. Take really care. really appreciate you. You, you too. Bless you. Again, best wills from Gresham Ford. You know, I've had the opportunity to observe her at some distance over a period of years, and she really is a remarkable woman making an impact in our community. And I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to say that. 
uh, because some of you only know her as maybe you purchased a vehicle or you've just heard her voice on the ads, but she's the real deal. And I've talked with several other people who uh, perhaps for the first time have discovered, you know, that Bess Wills, she's she's really she's the real thing. So I'm delighted to uh, to mention that here today and to encourage you to take advantage of a business that has supported uh, Christian radio here in our community. If you're uh, if you're looking to buy a new vehicle or you need a vehicle service, uh, check out Gresham Ford. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we're going to talk with Susan Alexander Yates. She's the author of Cousin Camp. We're going to talk about how families who are sheltering in place might have some creative ideas and how you can um, knit your hearts together and you know not put your hands around each other's throats. <laughs> so that's coming up next. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, let's see. Let's look at the calendar. It's now been weeks since kids were told, nah, no school for you. You're going to have to stay home. It's been several weeks since parents have had to try to occupy their kids during that time. Well, the question is, are there creative ways to capture their attention, their imagination, and maybe even convey... Uh, some meaningful things to your kids and to strengthen your family connections. Well, a few weeks ago, we had Susan Alexander Yates on the program. She is the author of Cousin Camp, A Grandparent's Guide to Creating Fun, Faith, and Memories That Last. And one of the things that I noticed in the course of our conversation is that this inspirational book um, has more than just what grandparents can do to bring cousins together. There's lots of specific, doable ideas and hilarious stories um, that will help families who are now, well, quarantining together have a more meaningful time. So if you're looking for some great suggestions and maybe a glimpse into what other families have done, this is a great resource for you as well. So I invited Susan Alexander Yates to join us once again to talk about her book and what we can glean from it. She is a popular speaker and the author of several books, including And Then I Had Kids and Then I Had Teenagers. She's a regular guest on Family Life Today and other national radio programs. She lives with her husband, John, in Virginia, and they hold, um, well, cousin camps with some regularity. This year, I'm guessing, will be a little different, but I'm just delighted to have her back to give us some ideas of how we can make the most of this time that I believe God has given us to knit our hearts to one another. Susan Alexander Yates, welcome back. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed our last time together so much, so I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to have you back. Well, when we talked before, it had been a few short weeks. It's now lengthening into additional weeks, and I think sometimes families are a bit exhausted uh, in terms of creative ideas. Uh, maybe they're just exhausted, period, because it's challenging to be together as much as we are now required to be, although it is a blessing. And I so appreciate your resource because it challenges us to see this season as an opportunity um, and you give us some creative ways to make the most of it. For listeners who didn't hear our conversation on Cousin Camp, give us just a, a brief recap, and then we'll talk about some things families can do now. Oh, okay, great. Well, my husband, John, and I have five children. We actually had five kids in seven years, so that was a little crazy. Um, <laughs> number uh, five turned out to be twins, four and five, which was a surprise. So I can particularly empathize with mothers right now with little people who are shut mm -hmm. up at home. It's a hard season. Our kids are all now adults. They're all married, and we have 21 grandchildren. And our kids are spread out um, across different states. One of our, our oldest, Allison, and her husband and five children live in our same town, so we do see them. But the other four kids and their families live in different places. 
And years ago, Georgine, when we wanted to, um, we were really praying about our family and praying about what was important in terms of our family vision. And we just adapted uh, the passage from Matthew that is really the great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself. And as we thought about what that looked like, practically speaking, we realized that one of our goals would be not only that we now as grandparents, but also when we were younger as parents, could impact our child's faith, praying them into a relationship with the Lord, but then secondly, building them into each other. So um, that's a long process, and (laughs) every family has sibling rivalry, and especially right now when you're cooped up. But then now at the next phase, how can we help our grandchildren know one another? So we, for 11 years, have run a camp in the summer that's just for the grandchildren. Parents are not allowed to come. And for our camp, you have to be four years old to come. We didn't want to deal with uh, kids up all night and kids that weren't potty trained. And by four, you're you're hopefully sleeping through the night and potty (laughs) trained and have learned somewhat how to be obedient So I do tell a lot of stories in the book of others who have started their camps or their family reunions with children younger. So there's not one way to do this. It depends on your situation. But for us, it seemed right to have it start at at age four. So for 11 years, we've had cousin camp. We started with five children from three different families, and our camp runs for three days and for three nights and four days. And it's a blast. And so the book is really sort of a recipe for how you, as a grandparent, can um, plan a time with your grandchildren. But it's not just that. I tell a third of the book is about all different types of family reunions, from adult reunions with just some adults without children to a young aunt who um, was a single woman in her 40s who lives in the U.K., and she has hosted a neighborhood and niece and nephew camp every summer for several days because she wanted to be intentional about making a difference in the lives of her nieces and nephews. So there's a variety of things to do. And one of the my favorite things about the book is so often I'm sure we all read books with lots of ideas and visions, and we get to the end of the book and we are just like drinking from a fire hose. We, we're <laughs> discouraged, we're overwhelmed, but we don't know where to begin. So I didn't want that to be the reader's experience. So instead, I put a working chapter, the very middle chapter, chapter five, is a working chapter where I ask you questions and guide you in planning your own family reunion, whether it's um, with extended family or grandchildren or uh, whoever it's with, small, large, how do you begin? And so that's your working chapter. So up until Chapter 5, you've had some input, some ideas, and then you take a break and you design your own camp. And then the subsequent four chapters are where you can look at other ideas and circle them and then go back and fill in to your chapter what is appropriate for you. So the goal is by the time you get to the end of the book, you have, and it's a brief book, mm-hmm. um, you have your family reunion planned, at least sketched out. So I really love how practical how practical the book is. It's yeah. not just instructional, it's very practical. And also I love the stories of how you have done it and how others have done it as well. Now before we talk about um, some ideas for families who are sheltering in place together, for you as a grandparent, how are you connecting with your grandkids? Invariably when I talk to uh, folks about how they're weathering this current uh, COVID storm, 
Uh, they say the thing they miss the most is connecting with their grandchildren. How are you doing that, and what suggestions might you have for other grandparents? Yeah, that is such a good question. Well, one thing we try to do is we try to FaceTime the different kids and the different families once a week. Um, so that we can talk to the grandchildren. And I need to be the first to say I'm not very techy, but I have learned how to FaceTime on the telephone. And one of the things that is important is that you have specific questions that you can ask your grandchildren that call for more than a one-word answer. Um, how are you doing? Well, fine, or I'm bored. That That's just very general. <laughs> so it's better to say so to your uh Second grader, what's something fun that you have done this week? Tell me one thing that's been fun or tell me one thing that's been hard or tell me one, what's something new that you've done that you wouldn't be able to do if you weren't at home or if they're still doing school online, what has been something that has been nice about school this week? What's been something that's been hard so that you're getting a little beyond the okay, fine, whatever kind of comments? Yeah, yeah. And I... I encourage parents, grandparents of teenagers to keep it brief. Uh, teenagers are much more interested in Zooming with their friends than talking to a grandparent. And so don't feel badly if you don't get a lot out of your teenagers. That's normal. That's just the season in life. And one day it will come back to you. They'll, they'll want to talk to you. So little kids are... Um, are easier in some ways. I think the moms right now that are having the hardest time are the ones with toddlers and the ones yes. with teenagers. Uh, the ones in the middle, kind of the middle years, are not quite so hard. They're, they don't have as many demands. They haven't hit those hormonal swings of the teenagers. Perhaps, you know, their graduation hasn't been canceled. So it's important to just recognize that different people are having different experiences right now. I, I have a, a good friend who, who's a grandmother, and she has a first grader and a third grader live in a different city. She's not able to see them. But what she has done, and she did this with the mom's recommendation, her daughter-in-law said, you know what would be really helpful is if you would read to the girls for a half hour, once or twice a week. So she Hmm. gets the girls on the phone, and she shows them the book, and she reads one of their all-time favorite books. And what that does is it gives her daughter-in-law a break. (laughs) She can go and hide for 30 minutes while the grandkids are on the phone with Grandma. So there are different things you can do. I have a, a, a grandfather who is, has asked his grandchildren to send, make up some stories and send them to him or tell some stories, and he's going to put together a little newsletter, a, a pretend newspaper that he will put on his computer and print out and send to the grandchildren. Now, they can, <laughs> if they don't write, they can dictate something funny. And he can come up with specific questions. So he's creating a family newsletter. So that's oh, just what? another idea. <laughs> great, great suggestions. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Susan Alexander Yates. Her book is Cousin Camp, A Grandparent's Guide to Creating Fun, Faith, and Memories That Last. But the book is much, much more. And as she's just mentioned, uh, there are all kinds of su- suggestions, practical helps for uh, families in different situations as well. When we come back, we're going to talk about some ideas for moms of small children and perhaps moms of teenagers who are sheltering in place, moms and dads, I should say, uh, with uh, maybe a little strain. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Susan Alexander Yates. She is the author of Cousin Camp, A Grandparent's Guide to Creating Fun, Faith, and Memories That Last, that also includes ideas for all types of family reunions and get-togethers. Uh, before the break, we were talking about um, the challenge of, of parents in dealing with very small children and perhaps even teenagers. Uh, and as I mentioned, your book is not just for grandparents. You have all kinds of practical uh, information ideas uh, for families in different situations as well. What are some things that you would suggest for the mom and dad, perhaps with smaller children during this, uh, this yeah. season? Uh, that's a great question. And yeah, I think one of the things to keep in mind, Georgina, is we think we have to do big things, but mm-hmm. really, particularly with little kids, it's the simple things. I had um, one, a woman ask me on my blog, what can I do with my young children? And I said, go collect rocks and come back and paint the rocks. And she sent me a photo of her four-year-old who had painted a whole bunch of rocks and it had taken up like two hours, collecting <laughs> rocks and painting rocks. Another thing that folks are doing is um, chalk. Get some chalk and decorate, write messages on sidewalks and driveways. That's a fun thing to do with little children. You can even do that in the neighborhood. Our daughter who lives in Tennessee did this with the neighborhood, and they were careful that the kids' social distance were six feet apart, but they provided the chalk, and the children in the neighborhood had a blast decorating the sidewalks and leaving really sweet messages. Um, Another thing you can do with small children is give each child uh, a bag, like a a lunch bag. Most Mm -hmm. of them, I think, use um, lunch boxes. But some kind of bag and go out with the challenge. Let's see what we can collect that God has made. And it only has to be different things that God has made. In other words, not a soda can that's thrown around on the side of the street, but just things that God has made. And then you come back and you dump your pile on the floor and you have a show and tell. What is my favorite thing and why? Uh, One other idea that really uh, crosses ages, but you can do this with little kids and then middle-aged kids and and teenagers as well, is one of the things that I have done before camp every year is I go to a house under construction and I ask the builders if they will throw into a pile different scraps of carpentry that they're not using. And then I go back with huge, black, thick garbage bags and I collect their scraps and get a bunch of nails with heads. They need to be kind of the fat nails with heads and several hammers. And we have creative woodworking. And, you know, the construction workers are working now, so they're out there. Houses are being built. It's easy to go and collect scraps and get yourself some several hammers and some nails and see what you can create. And it's amazing what the kids can come up with. And then you can also throw some painting into that if you want to paint their projects or some Sharpie pens where they can just draw on them. So those would just be three ideas right off the bat. For something oh, those you are great. Little- you kind of make me want to go outside and <laughs> gather up some things <laughs> myself. <laughs> there are no kids in the home. I just want to do that. Now, what about yeah. the more challenging other end of the continuum? And those are teenagers who are easily bored, and because they've been exposed to so much with technology, it's it's hard to capture their imagination and their attention. It is hard. Well, uh, one of my daughters actually has teenagers, and they were housebound, and the kids really, just four boys, they really needed to work out. So they created an, in outdoors in an outdoor area under their house a weight room, and they basically didn't have any weights, so they filled empty milk cartons with dirt 
and those became weights. And then they put some exercise videos on the video on the um, computer, and they had their own weight classes and <laughs> had a little challenge for themselves and each other. So you can design a new workout regime. Uh, another thing you can do with teenagers is have everybody pick a new, and you can do this with middle the middle years too. So I'd say the middle years and the teen years. Have everybody choose a new life skill that they're going to learn. One. One daughter might decide she's going to learn sign language. Another, Spanish. Uh, a son might decide he's going to learn woodworking. So have assign each child to come up with their own new life skill that they want to learn. And then they can share it with the family. Another thing you can do is you can have each teenager create an imaginary business. If ever you wanted to go into business, what would you choose as your business? Think, you know, way outside the box, then do research on the Internet for how you would start that particular business. Learn how to make a business plan. Learn how to bill people. Design some little business cards. That's a fun thing to do, and it gets your kids being creative and not just glued into screens. So they each have to come up with a new business. And, you know, I've seen this take off. We have a kid in our neighborhood who designed designed a, a lawn mowing business. And uh, now he's even got calling cards, and he's going around the neighborhood, and he's mowing people's lawns. Oh, that's and he's incredible. <laughs> I can see why your your uh, cousin camp is a success because you've got these great ideas that uh, that capture the imagination of young people. And I think we lament the fact that kids have so many options that don't require them to to be outside. And yet, with a little suggestion, as you just demonstrated, there are all kinds of things that they can do. I mean, when I was a kid, there were no screens. There was a television, but there wasn't anything on it for kids. But to to um, stimulate their imagination and get their hands and their minds working, uh, great, great suggestions. And, you know, another thing you can do with your children, particularly your teenagers, is have each one of your children adopt a child from a, a family that you know to become their buddy for two weeks and do this in conjunction with another set of parents. Say, hey, my kids are a little bit bigger than yours. We want to adopt your children for a week, or it may, you may do this interchangeably between several families. And then have the bigger kids um, call them, make treats for them, send them notes, pray for them. It's a way that we can reach out to our neighbors, and also it's a way that we can teach our own children to become other-centered. Mm-hmm. You know, they're disappointed, things are not happening, and it's real easy to, to that's, it's so easy for all of us for that to bring up our self-centered self-pity. So what we need to do is to think of how we can care for others. And, oh, that's you know, you can also do that in terms of just baking cookies, baking cards, delivering them to the hospital to, you know, pull up and run it into the people who are working at the desk in the hospital or to the fire station, deliver something to the fire station. That's a treat. Yeah. Uh, to all, so there are very creative ways that you can reach out to other people. And this is good for, your, for them. It encourages them. But it's also good for your own kids to learn how to do this. Absolutely. Now, the subtitle of your book is A Grandparent's Guide to Creating Fun, Faith, and Memories That Last. And in the final couple of minutes that we have left, let's talk about faith, how families can, in this circumstance, help to instill uh, faith in their children who are um, in a very unique situation and maybe a little bit more open uh, to a teachable moment. 
Well, I think one of the things is to pick a Bible character. You know, the Bible is the easiest to take in when you take a character. So take Jonah, for example, and do a little study on the book of Jonah and what was hard in his life and what was frustrating for him and how did God work in his life and did God give up on him and did he understand what God was doing. Ask real life questions and what can we learn from Jonah and it's really great to um, do this as a family because when we're doing this in terms of a family, we can bounce ideas off of each other. So in my book, Cousin Camp, I actually have in detail three different Bible studies you can use that we have used at our camp. So it's all outlined right there for you if you can grab a copy of the book. So that's one thing. Something you can do as well that we have done at Cousin Camp is each child at Cousin Camp has a journal, and they write down how they came to know Jesus in their journals. And sometimes they come to know Jesus at camp, and then they write their story with the help, if they're not writers yet, with the help of one of their older cousins. So during this time, I really encourage your children, whatever age they are, to keep a journal. You can have them write out their testimonies if they never have before. You can have the older kids write an essay. I, I think this would be so great. What if you and I, Georgine, had a hand, a first-hand account from a great-grandparent who lived through the plague of 1918 mm. and told what it was like, what was hard, what, what it was like? And, of course, we would have it in original handwriting then. And what if we had a picture that was 100 years old? So I encourage teenagers today, or college kids even, to write an essay describing the plague of 2020. One day, write it as a letter to your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren. One day, that'll be a really valuable, precious thing to have handed down. Oh, what a great idea. Well, once again, we're talking about Cousin Camp, A Grandparent's Guide to Creating Fun, Faith, and Memories That Last. And I would add to that title and so much more. The book is published by Revell. You can order it online, have it delivered to your home in a matter of sometimes hours, a day or so. Uh, but this is a great resource to help us all get through this pandemic in a way that as we look back, we will cherish the things that we learned about one another, the time we spent together, the creativity that was fostered that may change the course uh, of a family for years to come. Susan Alexander Yates, thank you so much. I so appreciate your, uh, uh, your creativity and your being with us here today. Thank you, Georgina. And I just want to encourage the listeners. I have a, a free download coming out on Camp at Home that actually has 100 ideas in it for, that you can use for every age child. And if you sign up for my blog, if you just go to SusanAlexanderYates.com and sign up to receive my blog, you will get this. It should be available within 10 days, and you'll get this in your email. Oh, excellent. Susan Alexander Yates. Thank you, and have a wonderful time sheltering in place. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we return after the top of the hour, we're going to talk with Michael Austin. He's with the Christian History Institute. We'll talk about one of their editions that deals with how the church, the early church, was responsible for health care and the development of hospitals. And during this pandemic, it's a rather interesting reflection as we look back. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us today. 
Well, as the coronavirus has raged across the globe and here at home, Christian History Magazine has an issue that explains how Christians founded healthcare and hospitals and the mission of the church. Well, the Christian History Institute, publisher of Christian History Magazine, offers healthcare and hospitals in the mission of the church. It's issue number 101, for your information, born out of the core belief that humans are made in the image of God and are worthy of healthcare administered by the institution known as the hospital. Well, these two ideas help to define the modern world where solutions are sought and care is provided in contrast to the pre-Christian era in which the sick were simply cast out and the dead left unattended. Well, here to talk with us about this uh, this issue, Michael Austin. He's a national spokesman for Christian History Institute and founder of Publish the Good News. Michael Austin, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you, uh, Georgine, and uh, thanks for that great introduction. You've done your homework. (laughs) Well, I love the Christian History magazine, for one thing. Well, Christian history has been largely removed from the American public education system that Christian leaders began in the early years of the nation. And so there's a a large, um, I, I suppose you could argue that there's broad ignorance about the role that Christianity played and the church played in the founding of the institutions that we now take for granted um, hospitals and healthcare. Talk a little bit about Christian History Magazine and this particular focus on um, the Christians' role and the theology behind the Christians' role in this area. Well, thanks for asking that question. Uh, it's an interesting story, and uh, you're quite right. The um, the history of the faith is um, becoming dimmer and dimmer as uh, the days and years go by because the Bible has been removed from our education system. And um, actually, the founder of the magazine, Ken Curtis, who was a film documentarian, discovered in his work that uh, we Christians just don't know very much about the history of the faith. Um, So this was back in 1982 when he started the magazine. Uh, He was a producer, by the way, of a well-known film, The Cross and the Switchblade. That Yeah, that was a film that starred Pat Boone. It was a bit of a crossover film because in those days, this would be in the early 70s, there wasn't this balkanization of of Christian films. Uh, We can go to see Christian films, but usually it's uh, a limited uh, screening in some theater uh, for a week or or whatever. And um, Back in back in the seventies, this this film, because of Pat Boone and and others, uh, became uh, it got a very wide circulation. It was the story, a great story of um, Wilkerson, um, uh, forgetting his first name. Forgive me. I I think it was uh, David Wilkerson. Yes, David um, Wilkerson. Yeah, <laughs> pastor from New Jersey that crossed the Hudson River and uh, ministered to the gangbangers of the 60s in New York City. Um, and uh, what, a, what an amazing story that is and was. As a matter of fact, the, uh, the Institute has now republished a, a premiere edition of that film. Um, so uh, that, that film is a classic. Uh, but in any event, Ken Curtis was a film documentarian. Uh, his work was to uh, uh, document the history of the Christian faith, and he did a lot of biographies. In fact, he started a co- film company, very popular um, catalog of, of work that is um, p- 
popular among uh, churches, of course, uh, parachurch organizations, uh, schools, Christian schools. And um, in any event, having discovered that the Christians don't know much about the faith, he started this wonderful magazine. And uh, it was originally distributed, by the way, by another magazine, Christianity Today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but about eight years ago, nine, nine, I think we're going on probably nine or ten years ago, uh, that, um, uh, that publication took a turn in its mission, and the magazine came back to Christian History Institute, where it originally started, and Ken, at that time, was suffering from a terminal uh, cancer. And he made this issue, actually, uh, Christian History Magazine, issue 101, the first uh, issue published and distributed by the Institute when they recovered the magazine itself and, and started up their production of the magazine, and they developed a website so there's kind of a backstory, um, an interesting backstory here that Ken was going through a life-threatening experience that eventually took his life with cancer. And he, by the way, developed or uh, produced a three-DVD series um, called Reflections, and it's his his own personal meditation on uh, Psalm 23 is one of them. The Lord's Prayer is an, another, and the and the Beatitudes, um, Christ's Beatitudes, um, biblical. Uh, all three of them referring to biblical scripture, and Ken talking about um, his struggle with cancer, and they are just a wonderful, wonderful meditation on. Mm-hmm the hope that we have as believers that we relate to this thing called death in a completely different way. And that, as you have mentioned in your introduction, is why the Christians even today are showing up differently in the, in the midst of this pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Well, the issue that we're referring to uh, features a collection of in-depth articles chronicling how, uh, from its early days, the church carried out active ministries of philanthropy and care for the sick. This was unique in its time uh, in that because we had so little understanding of sickness and because of our own nature, people who were seriously ill were simply cast out. Uh, and the way the general population responded was was quite different. A trace for us a little bit of that history and the role that Christians and the early church played in expressing that theological view that we are made in the image of God and therefore people uh, merited the kind of time and attention that we now expect uh, when it comes to health care. Quite an amazing story. If we uh, dial back the calendar to, say, 200, <clears throat> here we are, Roman Empire, thriving. Uh, they've just wiped out um, uh, Israel. Um, they have decimated the Middle East. The entire known world, uh, basically the um, what is now the countries surrounding the Mediterranean, was thoroughly pagan. And in the Roman era of that time, illness and sickness was perceived uh, very differently than it is today. And that is that this was a sign of weakness. It was a sign of uh, 
the failure to please the gods that they worshipped. And so what they did basically with sick people, infirm uh, people with disabilities of all kinds, they rejected them. And when, some, when a family member got sick, it was not uncommon that they would be taken out and uh, put on the sidewalk uh, to die. And so what could be seen, and we know this from Roman history, accounts of history at the time, uh, not only Josephus, who, of course, chronicled uh, the Christians um, in, the popul- in that population and, and what they were doing, but other Roman historians um, documented this, um, this very pathetic era in which, uh, as I say, the, the sick and the infirm were, were neglected and cast out. Now, what were the Christians doing? What was their response? Well, they were concerned about them for the very reason that you mentioned, that our faith, we learn and imbibe the truth that our Creator created us in His own image. And therefore, the Christians were concerned about the human body. Uh, They were beginning to understand and live the truth that it is our body today that is the temple uh, in which the Holy Spirit resides for the believer. Um, And that is um, an undeniable truth that that, uh, Christians experience on a day-by-day basis. And so we are interested in this body and taking care of this body. In fact, the Old Testament, of course, is well known for its teaching of what we know today as hygiene, the difference between the clean and the unclean. There is an awareness given by our Heavenly Father that there are things to avoid and that there are things to uh, enjoy and exalt in. Um, And so uh, it's ironic, not not really ironic, but I think it's uh, it's worth to see that in in this era, 2020, where we have when we have the most advanced kind of technology, medical technology, um, healthcare technology, that people are actually being cared for in hospitals quite like they were being cared for in 200 when there was a pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and, and it lasted for 15 years, and it wiped out a third of the population of Europe. Devastating. Uh, we can't even imagine that. Mm. But, I'm going to uh, ask you to you know hold, that, hold that thought. Uh, we need to take yeah. a quick break, so hold that thought. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Michael Austin uh, with Christian History Institute. We're talking about an issue of Christian History Magazine that reflects the history of the church when it comes to health care and hospitals. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. The second half of this conversation, you can hear it tomorrow at this time. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, U.S. Attorney General William Barr has instructed federal prosecutors to be on the lookout for overly restrictive state and local shutdown orders that might infringe on people's constitutional rights. Well, in this memo that was issued yesterday, the Secretary of State recognized that while some restrictions are necessary for combating the virus, the pandemic, others could go too far. Hence, the 
uh, protests that we've seen over the last week and a half. His directive comes as an Illinois court has ruled against Governor J.B. Pritzker. I mentioned that in the first hour in a case brought by a Republican state lawmaker seeking a temporary restraining order uh, preventing the state stay at home mandate. In addition, a group of businesses in Pennsylvania have asked the Supreme Court to strike down an executive order limiting which sectors of the economy can operate with the pandemic, arguing Pennsylvania's Governor Tom Wolf has overstepped his authority. Meanwhile, President Trump offered his support on Tuesday for states across the country that are beginning to reopen, saying many are moving to do so safely. And a small group of scientists and billionaires have teamed up in an ambitious effort to battle the coronavirus pandemic, the Wall Street Journal is reporting. The group's work has been described as a COVID-19 Manhattan project in a nod to the famous effort to develop the atomic bomb and reportedly is led by 33-year-old physician turned venture capitalist Tom Cahill. The U.S. may have uh, underreported the number of people who died from the coronavirus by up to 15,000 people as of the 4th of this month, according to a newly published study. It's a suggestion in the study. And in China, scientists appeared to dampen hopes that the coronavirus would eventually burn out for good and said the virus will likely return each year, according to this new report. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has issued new guidance for meatpacking plants and their workers recommending proactive precautionary measures to reduce the risk of exposure to the novel coronavirus. Well, these new measures come as analysts say a possible coronavirus uh, induced disruption in the food supply chain may leave shoppers paying more for less preferred cuts of meat. And a pug in North Carolina reportedly has tested positive for novel coronavirus, possibly the first dog in the U.S. to contract the illness. Dr. Deborah Burks, coronavirus response coordinator for the White House Coronavirus Task Force, told Fox and Friends face masks will be needed at large gatherings and on airplanes for the foreseeable future. So if you don't have one, get one. Quest Diagnostics announced that any person who wants to get an antibody test for COVID-19 can purchase one online without having to go to the doctor's office as the country pushes to broaden screening for the virus. And that's Quest Diagnostics. I'd be a little bit cautious because I'm guessing we're going to have others suggesting they have the antibody test for sale. So be wary. Some public services in Hong Kong are set to resume next Monday when thousands of city civil servants head back to work. That's according to Hong Kong leader Carrie Lam today. And residents in the northeastern U.S. will be treated uh, Tuesday to a joint flyover by the Air Force Thunderbirds and Navy Blue Angels, an appreciation of the first responders and essential workers. And until we know more about how the coronavirus impacts animals, social distancing guidelines are now being recommended for family pets in the U.S., according to the CDC. Well, there you have it. Stay in history. 1967. Muhammad Ali is stripped of his heavyweight boxing title after he refuses to be drafted into the U.S. Army forces for the Vietnam War. 1758. James Monroe, the fifth president of the United States, is born in Westmoreland County, Virginia. 1945. Italian dictator Benito Mussolini and his mistress are executed by Italian partisans as they attempt to flee the country. And on this day in history, 1958, the United States conducts the first 35 the first of 35 nuclear test explosions in the Pacific, proving ground as part of Operation Hardtack 1. And finally, on this day in history, 1993, the first Take Our Daughters to Work Day, promoted by the New York-based Ms. Foundation, is held in an attempt to boost the self-esteem of girls by having them visit a parent's place of work. The event would later be expanded. It's now Take Our Kids to Work Day. Sons are also 
invited to come. Well, the World Health Organization is cautioning those who have recovered from coronavirus uh, that they should still be socially distancing. The United States recorded one million coronavirus cases today, the first nation in the world to reach that grim milestone as states across the country wrestle with how and when to safely reopen businesses with fears of economic disaster. Well, the landmark number of COVID-19 cases in the U.S. comes just uh, one day after the global cases surpassed three million. Well, the mounting infections across the U.S. come as the death toll exceeded 57,000, according to a tally by Johns Hopkins University. New York remains the worst hit state in the country. Uh, as of Tuesday, infections in the U.S. far exceed all other nations, with Spain recording 229,400 and Italy on the cusp of surpassing 200,000. The U.S. now makes up one-third of global infections since the virus first emerged in the southern China city of Wuhan last December. China has officially confirmed 83,000 cases and 4,600 deaths there. Nearly all nations in the world have implemented lockdowns to curb the spread of the virus, sending economies into freefall. And as I mentioned, the CDC's guidance for meat and poultry workers amid the virus and the coronavirus outbreaks uh, is a response to food supply concerns. Well, the CDC has issued these guidelines for meat packing plants and their workers. Uh, multiple outbreaks of COVID-19 and staffing shortages have forced some of the nation's largest meat processing plants, including those owned by JBS Smithfield Foods and Tyson Foods, to temporarily pause operations at select facilities in recent weeks. Well, with potentially serious repercussions at stake for the nation's food supply and livestock value chain, the CDC is now emphasizing the importance of um, social distancing for workers and employers involving in the involved rather in the processing of beef, pork and poultry in the fight against the viral disease. Workers involved in meat and poultry processing are not exposed to SARS-CoV-2 through the meat products uh, they handle, the CDC explained. However, their work environments, processing lines and other areas in busy plants where they have close contact with co-workers and supervisors may contribute substantially to their potential exposure. Well, now the guidelines say physically distancing workers, uh, reconfiguring workstations to separate workers by at least six feet, if possible, is necessary. They're reevaluating uh, re ventilation. They're encouraging uh, greater hand hygiene, although many of them wear gloves while working. Uh, they're reducing the duration of contact, encouraging greater physical distance between workers and the plant by adding multiple stations to clock in and clock out, for example, and increase worker separation from the break room to the plant floor. Staffers are often in close proximity. They're working to try to mitigate that close proximity. Well, as we're all considering the economic downturn and the impact that's having on the nation and really the nations of the world, uh, Todd Zwicky reminds us that nursing homes, uh, many of them are in crisis as well. He writes that as states begin to adjust their lockdown policies, they should consider a more targeted approach that accounts for the outsized risk faced by nursing homes. Reports are rolling in about the role nursing homes play in COVID-19 pandemic, and the numbers are horrifying. In Minnesota, 73% of all COVID-19 deaths are related to nursing homes. In Massachusetts, the figure is 55%. More systematic reporting and data collection efforts have resulted in upward revisions in many states of the percentage of deaths associated with nursing homes. Connecticut significantly revised its estimate upward this week, 
concluding that over half of all coronavirus-related deaths in the state involved nursing home residents instead of its earlier estimate of one-third. Colorado this week announced that 64% of its COVID-19 deaths were in nursing homes, a stunning increase of 84% in just one week. In communities such as Kirkland, Washington, home of one of the country's first virus outbreaks, virtually all of their COVID-19 deaths have been related to nursing homes. The U.S. isn't alone in experiencing nursing home trauma. A multi-country study published last week reinforces the uh, emerging U.S. trend, finding 57% of deaths in Canada and approximately half of all deaths in Europe from COVID-19 were related to nursing home patients, including 64% in Norway, 49% in Belgium, and an estimated 53% of the total deaths in Spain. Now, nursing homes are not representative of the general population, and by ignoring this reality, we overstate the risk of the virus to the general population and are failing to protect the most vulnerable among us. Um, an important point. Now, most of us are not nurses, physicians, healthcare workers, but we certainly can uh, pray for those who are in nursing homes, attempt to connect when possible uh, through whatever creative means we might come up with. Nursing home ministries, as uh, we've uh, talked with uh, the director here before, may have some great uh, suggestions and opportunities as well. But we need to be mindful of those who are in nursing homes, um, not just here locally, but around the globe, who are certainly among the most vulnerable. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And certainly from four to six, you can listen to The Georgine Rice Show. But once the evening wears on and you're trying to think of something to do, let me encourage you to check out No Safe Spaces. As I've said, Salem Media Group has jumped into the movie business by streaming No Safe Spaces. It's that documentary about free speech from Adam Carolla and nationally syndicated radio host Dennis Prager. Now, No Safe Spaces was one of 2019's top grossing um, document, political documentaries. And despite the film's popularity, uh, the filmmakers were unable to strike a deal with traditional streamers because of the political bias in Hollywood. So they took it to Salem Radio, marking the first time that uh, Salem's going to show a feature film online. Well, the message of the film is how free speech and tolerance is being blocked by intolerance forces who say they believe in free speech until and unless, you know, someone presents a message they disagree with. So let me encourage you to check it out. No Safe Spaces is now available to watch for a limited time only at nosafespaces.com for $19.95. For KPDQ listeners, that's, of course, you. You can use the discount code SAVE25 and save 25% off. Again, nosafespaces.com and the uh, discount code SAVE25 for KPDQ listeners. nosafespaces.com want to give you an update for the state of Oregon, uh, the cases, the number of cases of COVID-19. And of course, this is being updated regularly and sometimes throughout the day. So these are the last numbers that I have had the opportunity to see. We'll update tomorrow. But cases of COVID-19, that new strain of coronavirus uh, began popping up in the U.S. in January. Cases in Oregon first uh, reported in February the 28th, to be more precise. There have since been 92 deaths in the state of Oregon, 2,354 cases and among the uh, tests, uh, there have been 51,000 of them in Oregon, 48,000, and I'm rounding up, um, were negative. So that's very encouraging news. In Washington, there have been 765 deaths, uh, 13,600 uh, 13, cases. And of the 179,000 tests, 165,000 negative. Those are the latest numbers for Washington. 
there were more than 988,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the United States as of 8 a.m. Pacific time this morning. That's according to Johns Hopkins University. You can also check out uh, Governor Kate Brown's detailed roadmap to reopen Oregon. When will schools reopen, childcare, restaurants during the phase-in plan or the approach? Oregonians uh, will still need to keep their distance from one another, wash their hands incessantly. In fact, I, the skeletal remains of my once soft hands are thoroughly clean. Uh, cover our faces in public as uh, best practice, even as uh, the restrictions are lifted. And Oregon Speaker of the House Tina Kotek said the Oregon Employment Department had handed over 230,000 initial claims uh, over five weeks, referring to unemployment. However, a long queue of initial claims have not even been processed. Under normal circumstances, it takes three weeks to get a payment, but some folks are now looking at four to five weeks, if that, for the first payment, according to Ms. Kotek. And Oregon is facing sudden, severe, and widespread declines in revenue amid the coronavirus outbreak. One can only imagine, if you do the math in your head, from personal and corporate income taxes to capital gains, lottery revenues, lodging and fuel taxes, program fees. All state agencies are being hit, but uh, no two identically. Some, such as the Oregon Health Authority, the Employment Department, and the Department of uh, Human Services face a surge in demand for their services, whether it's um, expanded COVID-19 testing, increased Medicaid spending, or the needed hiring to process unemployment claims. Now, others like the lottery, state parks, Travel Oregon, depend on revenue sources that have suddenly evaporated altogether. Still, other agencies are reliant on appropriations from the state general fund, which gets 85% of its receipts from personal income taxes. With unemployment surging, economists expect those revenues to drop precipitously, precipitously, Say that three times. Well, a look at the uh, or at Oregon's budget in the age of coronavirus. Um, the Oregon Health Authority reported 58 new COVID-19 cases on Sunday, bringing that total up. Unemployment. Governor Kate Brown on Sunday apologized to Oregonians who are dealing with delays and errors while they're trying to get their unemployment funds. Small business owners struggling or uh, struggles rather are coming into sharp focus as many shuttered businesses prepare to pay their bills for the second month of the outbreak with no path toward reopening. The number of homeless people in Portland who move into permanent houses has sharply decreased since COVID-19 restrictions hit Oregon, breaking a years-long streak of gradual growth. Um, uh, Bobby Begay of Yakima Tribal member and Salilo Village leader um, died on Friday from complications related to COVID-19. This is a big name in the Yakima Tribal community. Oregon's craft distilleries are now allowed to take online or phone orders and ship directly to customers within the state. Oregon City Commissioners sent the city's mayor to the woodshed on Sunday, chastising him at an emergency meeting for suggesting that Oregon City might violate the stay-at-home order and allow businesses to reopen in advance of any state move in that direction. But the city commissioners in Oregon City, they ain't having it. And Baker County officials want to let some businesses reopen soon, and they say that they've got a plan to do that safely. So that's what's uh, happening in uh, in Oregon, uh, affecting uh, many of us. One of the things that's rather interesting in all of this, if you happen to look out your window and depending on where you live, wildlife experts are saying that you might be finding some interesting wildlife in your yards these days. And they actually want you to document that fact. 
wildlife experts say that you might be finding, um, well, things you wouldn't normally see. Over the weekend, Yastrid, whose last name I will not butcher, took her dog Riley to her parents' house in uh, Bethany neighborhood. She let her out in the backyard to play. A few minutes later, she heard some unusual barking. Well, her husband went outside to see what was going on and saw there were um, that her dog was facing a bobcat. My husband walked outside, she says, and saw that uh, there was a bobcat and he screamed. Uh, he and his quick thinking and everything, he literally just scooped up our dog right, uh, right away. Uh, Riley suffered to only some small cuts and scratches. Apparently, the two of them had something of a row. Well, witnesses said the bobcat had a cub with her and probably got a little protective. Wildlife experts say that while finding a wild animal in your backyard might be a bit surprising, it's actually not that unusual. Portland has amazing wildlife, so the sightings people are reporting are really fascinating. Uh, Salinger said that uh, with people sheltering at home these days, wild animals are wandering into areas they might not normally go. At the same time, humans are spending more time walking their neighbors, uh, their neighborhoods rather, and hanging out in their yards. So they may see things that happen on a regular basis, but you're just not there to witness. So the organization is uh, taking advantage of the two and launching backyard bio blitz. Uh, they're not asking folks to go out to uh, natural areas or travel anywhere, just uh, looking around your house. What are you really hearing and what are you seeing then you go online to the portland audubon website to every uh, tuesday report what you find check a few boxes and you can become a wildlife researcher you can add that to your resume uh, and because the more you look the more you'll find even in your own backyard it's kind of an exciting pastime for those who have a um, a desire to document what's going on i'm seeing all kinds of stories from all around the country in which you're seeing wild animals um venturing into areas where they would not uh, go because of traffic and people and all of that. So it's kind of interesting, a little frightening, but interesting to see animals taking back ground that uh, was taken from them some time ago. want to mention that today is the deadline to register to vote in Oregon's primary. It's also your last chance to switch from being an unaffiliated voter to registering with one of the major parties, even temporarily. That's a must-do if you have an itch to vote for Joe Biden, the uh, all-around endorsed Democrat, one of his opponents who have uh, quit the race since then, and or Donald Trump, the Republicans, triumphant renominee. Well, Oregonians who register to vote as members of minor parties or no party at all are still can vote uh, in city and county elections and on ballot measures, but they won't see Trump or Biden's names on their ballots, nor the names of candidates for the legislature or Oregon Secretary of State or other statewide races. So if you want to engage in partisan voting, at least temporarily, you need to register for the Oregon May primary. Today's the day to do that. The purpose of a primary is to nominate each party's top choice for the general election contest in the fall. So voters who aren't registered with the party don't get a say at this stage, at least in these statewide and national races. Voters who are independent of any party get no say in Oregon's uh, partisan primary races, and that's the way it's structured here. So if you want to register, and you can do that temporarily for the sake of engaging in Oregon's May primary, today is the day to do that online. So check, uh, check that out. Register to vote now. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back for the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I wanted to remind you of a couple of things. We just finished our conversation earlier this hour with Michael Austin with Christian History Magazine. We're going to continue that conversation tomorrow 
in the first hour of the program. Just a fascinating resource. If you'd like to follow up on that, the uh, web address is christianhistorymagazine.org. And the issue on hospitals and healthcare is uh, number 101, uh, but there are all kinds of resources available there as well. And it's amazing that it's available at no cost. You can subscribe, as he pointed out, for a donation, but it's available at no cost. That includes a subscription. I would encourage a donation to underwrite the cost of production, but um, this is a tremendous resource for the Christian community, so take uh, keep that in mind. Also, I wanted to remind you that Susan Alexander Yates, who was my guest in the earlier part of the program, to talk about how families can occupy the time and attention of young people in their households in meaningful ways. You can go to her website for the 100 ideas that she's going to be publishing, I think in about a week, and she is going to contact us and let us know when that's available. But you can uh, sign on t- for her um newsletter and get those 100 ideas, I assume in a week we'll still be sheltering in place, at SusanAlexanderYates.com. SusanAlexanderYates.com, and all, all three words are spelled just as you would expect them to be spelled. But that's another great resource for families who are looking for creative ideas and what to do uh, with their kids during the season. And that's from the little ones all the way up to um, uh, high school and teenage kids as well. So keep that in mind. Also wanted to let you know that the May issue of Christian News Northwest is going to be online, as was the case in April. Like the April issue, the May issue of Christian News Northwest is now viewable online at cnnw.com, Christian News Northwest. Um, until the, uh, you just click on the link on the homepage to, to, uh, Download that until the stay at home orders are lifted in Oregon and southwest Washington, making access to the 1900 distribution sites for the newspaper available is just not uh, feasible. So the plan is for Christian News Northwest to continue to be viewable online. I'm just thrilled that there's an addition to have uh, to be able to do the work that uh, to populate that issue um, while sheltering in place. Uh, They're anxious, they say, to return to the good old ink and newsprint as soon as possible. Your prayers uh, to that end are appreciated. I think all of us are looking forward to a bit of normalcy. But John Fortmeyer, who is the publisher, wanted you to know that the May issue of Christian News Northwest is now online. You can view it uh, there, given the fact that, well, Friday is the 1st of May. Um, CNNW.com, Christian News Northwest, CNNW.com, the May issue of Christian News Northwest. Well, if you wanted to have an important conversation with a friend, how would you go about it? What key ingredients would be necessary for a successful visit? Well, for one thing, both of you would have to be involved in the dialogue. It wouldn't be a conversation if only one person was doing all the talking, right? Well, now consider having a conversation with the creator of the universe. Is that even possible, you might wonder? Well, the answer is yes, of course. But that's because he has made that possible. And just like other conversations, Conversations. Conversing with God involves both parties talking and both parties listening. Well, God delivered 66 books to 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years. We call them the Old and New Testaments. They make up God's word to his people. And thankfully, all scripture is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, in other words, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter, the first chapter Verse 21, when it comes to the Bible, you don't have to wonder if it truly came from God. Scripture is inspired and inerrant, we're told, and the Holy Spirit continues to speak to God's children today as we read his word, listen to it, um, being taught and preached and meditate on it. As we converse with God through prayer and scripture, God speaks to our heart and to our minds. It's a wonderful 
thing. Well, the Bible is essentially a love letter, a love letter from God to his children. If you want to have a regular conversation with the Lord, you'll need to develop a hunger for his word. The prophet Jeremiah expressed his hunger this way. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. The only way to grow into spiritual maturity is to feed on God's word and then put it into practice. Peter wrote in 1 Peter, the second chapter, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. When a believer chooses to meditate on scripture, the door of communication with God is opened and Various thoughts and insights began to flow into your heart and mind. The Holy Spirit works through the word to communicate the heart of God and the will of God to his children, the children of God. The psalmist declared, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In other words, scriptures lights the way for the next step, as well as our ongoing life of discipleship. The journey for believers is, will, of course, culminate one day in that, um, that time when we are in his presence. But until then... We have the opportunity to be with him in his word. Now, David declared, you have made known to me the path of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. That's in Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. And while on your way to heaven, the Lord desires to converse with his children every day. I want to encourage you if you are depressed or discouraged, if you simply had enough, you're not quite sure how you're going to go on. Spend some time in God's word. Allow his Holy Spirit to teach you and to guide you to be a lamp unto your feet so that we can please him during this season so that we can reach out to others and extend the love of Christ in a way that will honor him. I want to thank James Blind for engineering and producing today's program. Clark Hilton, the same, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great evening and spend some time in God's word. We'll be back tomorrow. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.